everyone. Welcome to the Scripture Study Project, our podcast dedicated to helping you discover the scriptures in a fresh way, invest your mind and heart into your personal study, and connect to God in your everyday life. We are your hosts, Krista and Zach Horton. This week we're studying section 45, one of my favorites in the Doctrine and Covenants, and uh, we're really excited for what we get to study this week. But first up, we alluded to our updated website in last week's episode and wanted to just give you a quick idea of what we have there. We've refreshed everything on the website, which is scripturestudyproject.com. But most importantly, we finally got up our Doctrine and Covenant study record. Now we realize that it is almost May (laughs) as we enter into this study. It was a four-month pause for dramatic effect. That's right. Um... But we feel like, and I actually like the study record for that reason, is that it's not, doesn't really need to be done as you go. It's really more of a, well, it's learning and feeling and doing and becoming in the scriptures. And we're really excited about this one as it kind of helps give you a history of certain sections of the Doctrine and Covenants, or we've sectioned them into... I keep wanting to say chunks, but that's groups, not the right yeah, word. Yeah. Why don't you say the word that would be right for that? Um, groups. Groups. You guys know why we have to do this podcast together, because I can't talk without Zach. I, I realize I've said that in the last few episodes where, Zach, what's the word for that? <laughs> anyway, um, but this year, as with the, if you purchased or if you know a little bit about the study record that we did for the Book of Mormon, um it's very similar, set up in a similar way, asking questions about the way that we study, ask questions to learn what God wants for you, to feel what he wants us to be doing and become something that he wants us to become, all about hearing God's voice for you in the scriptures. And so that's what we're hoping that this aids you in, as well as helps you dive into the story of the Doctrine and Covenants in church history. Yeah, I think we wrote this in the introduction to the study record, but it is not a study guide. It is a place for you to record your answers to some questions that we've spent some time formulating. It's very similar to what we do on the podcast. Yes, and this study record for the Doctrine and Covenants will only be offered in a digital version. You'll see that on the website. You can print it out. I put mine into just a binder, an eight and a half by 11 binder. You can staple it together. Um, it gives you a little more room and a little bit more ease to get it and print it out immediately. Um, we also have a, like the, for the book of Mormon, we also have a few study helps maps and charts that will be included with that, or you can buy those maps and charts separately. You'll also see that on the website. And if you, didn't get a chance to get the Book of Mormon study record or are interested in seeing a hard copy version of that, we also have a few left that we've listed on the website so you can order there. So go check it out. We'll, I think we always leave the link in our show notes here, or you can visit us on Instagram at Scripture Study Project for more information. But there's the quick update there. And now we're going to get into today's study, which Zach has already said, is Doctrine and Covenants, Section 45. Well, to introduce the background of Section 45, in the introduction to the section, there's a quote from Joseph Smith's history. 
But in that quote, there's a couple of ellipses. That's those three dots that show up there. There's some information that's been removed. And so I want to read the, the full history that Joseph Smith writes because it helps us frame this section. I, I've studied this many times and I've seen other people study and teach it. And a lot of times this gets labeled as a second coming chapter. And we jump into the signs of the second coming, which this is a great resource for information on the second coming. But if we understand the context in which the section comes, it's so much more than just a list of signs about the second coming. So, And I would even suggest as we read this, that you look at the section heading to kind of see where this full text gets put in, or we can put this in our footnotes so you can check out the actual notes from Joseph Smith's yeah, journal. Yeah. So here's what, what the prophet says. At this age of the church, many false reports, lies, and foolish stories were published in the newspapers and circulated in every direction to prevent people from investigating the work or embracing the faith. But to the joy of the saints, who had to struggle against everything that prejudice and wickedness could invent, I received the following. And it's that phrase that uh, was covered by, those, uh, by the ellipsis in the introduction that caught my attention. The saints who had to struggle against everything that prejudice and wickedness could invent. In other words, section 45 was given not just to give a doctrinal list of signs in the second coming, it was given to embolden and to strengthen members of the church as they faced criticism about their faith from outsiders and in the coming years from insiders, from people that have left the church and then turned around to attack their former friends. As an example of some of the uh, criticisms that are coming in Kirtland, if you remember from last week's episode, the members of the church have just barely gotten to Kirtland, Ohio, and they've met there this big group of new converts. And so we have the Kirtland converts who are being joined now by their New York brothers and sisters who have left everything behind. And now we have this one big church in Kirtland. And in Kirtland, we start to see for the first time in print, anti-Mormon literature. And one of the first authors of that uh, is a local newspaper man by the name of E.D. Howe, who starts publishing these little vignettes about the church in the Painesville Telegraph. And I wanted to read just a couple of them so you can get the flavor uh, of what's being said to other community members in Kirtland about the church and what church members are hearing about them from outsiders. Uh, in November of 1830, um, this is pretty soon after Oliver Cowdery and the missionaries get there, uh, How writes, if the Book of Mormon, as it is called, with the pretensions of its apostles, is a fabrication, it is one of the most infamous and blasphemous of character. And we must confess, after having an opportunity to canvass some of its claims to a true revelation from God, we have not been able to discover testimony which ought to elicit faith in any prudent or intelligent mind. It may perhaps be useless to condemn the thing by positive and absolute assertions. Time will discover in it either something of vast importance to men or a deep laid plan to deceive many. Uh, Howell write in a lot of his articles about the gold Bible and about Joe Smith and his gold Bible. A lot of that language comes from E.D. Howe that will plague the church for years to come. 
And what a welcoming that is. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he starts writing this before most of them even get there. Um, not off to a good start. No. Well, and to that point, a couple of months later, this is in January of 1831. So this is literally a couple of weeks before Joseph Smith himself will arrive. Uh, Howe publishes a letter to the editor, which says, Mr. Howe, we hear much these days about the Mormonites, the Mormon Bible, the Book of Mormon, and people are very desirous to know what Mormon signifies. In answering their inquiries, I would refer them to Bailey's Dictionary, where they will find that the word Mormon comes from the Greek word mormu, and by that author it is said to signify a bugbear, hobgoblin, raw head, and bloody bones. Now, I don't know what half of those even mean, but they don't <laughs> sound very nice. I thought they sounded nice. I kind of like the idea of being a bugbear. <laughs> Whatever that is, Whatever right? that is. <laughs> Maybe we don't want to know now that we've said them. But. So that's what's being said about members of the church. That's what's being thrown at them and at their faith. Now, that's not uh, something that's unfamiliar to us. Since 1831 until the present day, uh, it's been common to attack the Church of Jesus Christ, uh, both verbally and in print. And we see a lot of it today, both from outsiders and those that are... Uh, former members of the church, and even some from current members of the church. And in all of that uh, swirling criticism, it can be difficult to continue in belief, uh, to hold on to our, our faith. And so the question we want to invite you to ask this week as you study is this, how can I embrace my faith in Jesus Christ as I face criticisms or critics? How can I hold on to what I know and believe in the face of those that would attack that very knowledge and that very belief? And what we want to do to help you with that in this episode is share with you something you should know, something you should feel, something you can do, and something we can all be that will help us to embrace our faith in the face of critics and and, uh, criticism. Well, in the middle of this section, we get the first answer of what we need to know and what we need to be learning about as we figure out how to embrace our faith during times of internal or external struggles, whatever those may be. And that comes in verse 52. And he gives us the answer, then shall they know that I am the Lord. I think that's the beginning of what we need to be and what we need to remember is why we're here in the first place, that we need to know the Lord and remember where and in whom our faith is trusted, who we put our faith in. And he goes on to say, For I will say unto them, These wounds are the wounds with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. I am he who was lifted up. I am Jesus that was crucified. I am the Son of God. And so not only to remember that he's Jesus Christ and that he can give us strength and lift us up and that he's there for us, but also that he knows what we're going through because he suffered for us. Well, and just to add to that, at the beginning of the section, he expresses a similar truth about himself. This is back in verse 4, when he's asking us to listen to his voice, specifically saying to the Father, 
Behold the sufferings and death of him who did no sin, in whom thou wast well pleased. Behold the blood of thy son which was shed, the blood of him whom thou gavest that thyself might be glorified. In other words, the first thing he wants us to know in section 45 is not just that he's the Lord, but that he is this Lord who has suffered, who's been wounded, who's been bruised, who was killed, and who was resurrected for our benefit. This is a God that knows what it feels like to suffer. Uh, especially suffer at the hands of people that he thought would be his friends, people he thought would welcome him. And this is something that I think I learn over and over again when I'm having struggles or when I have doubts about my faith or when I'm confused at whatever it might be is why the why of why I'm even here, why, why I have faith. And I remember that I believe in a God and I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe because I felt his power. And so I think there's so much power to remembering that that is why we're here. That's why we're in the scriptures. The The learning and the knowing that come first is remembering him. Well, I think that helps us as we face critics or criticism because it centers us in what is most important in our testimony. Rather than getting stranded on gospel limbs and trying to defend our stance on position X, Y, or Z, centering ourselves in our belief and our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ brings us on very safe ground and something that hopefully uh, we have a pretty strong testimony of and, and current feeling about. And I think brings more peace to those arguments or strifes that we may be having because it brings a common ground mm. almost to whatever external things are happening. Yeah. I think building upon that knowledge, there is something also in the section that we can feel that helps us to embrace our faith. Um, of course, in the middle of the section, as I mentioned, there's a long list of signs of the second coming. And the Savior explains that when he gave this list of signs to his apostles in the New Testament, which is in Matthew chapter 24, or... Uh, in Joseph Smith Matthew in the Pearl of Great Price. In verse 34, he says that his disciples were troubled. And he told them first what he wanted them not to feel. Verse 35, I said unto them, be not troubled. In other words, he doesn't want us to feel troubled by the signs of the second coming. And I think by extension, he doesn't want these saints in 1831 to feel troubled by the attacks against their faith. But he does want them, in verse 39, to feel this. It shall come to pass that he that feareth me, of course, fear in the New Testament means to respect or honor, shall look forward for the great day of the Lord to come. I think what he wants us to feel um, is an excitement about our relationship with Jesus Christ and maybe even a confidence in our standing before him. Uh, he'll mention in verse, 40, uh, verse 57, uh, or 56 and 57, he'll reference the parable of the ten virgins from the New Testament. And if you remember that parable, that's the ten virgins, five of whom are wise and five of whom are foolish. And the wise ones that had their lamps prepared with oil are able to join this wedding procession and enter into the wedding feast at the end, whereas those that are foolish were unable to enter into the wedding feast because they weren't prepared. And when we tell that story, we focus a lot on the five foolish virgins. Uh, I think 
in hopes that it'll motivate us to be prepared and not to procrastinate. But I think it's an even more powerful feeling to, certainly it's powerful to imagine what it feels like to be left out. Imagine what it would feel like to be left out of the Savior's second coming or to be left out of the celestial kingdom because we procrastinated or we delayed or we weren't didn't take him serious. But if you're listening to this podcast, if you're listening to a podcast on scriptures, you're not the kind of person that's delaying or procrastinating. Of course, we're all human. I think it's much more powerful to imagine what we would feel like if we were part of that marriage feast. Imagine the peace, the comfort, and the confidence that would come if when you show up to the marriage feast, or symbolically, uh, when the Savior appears at the second coming, if he looked at you and accepted you, welcomed you into his kingdom. Um, In verse 57, he says, They that are wise and have received the truth and have taken the Holy Spirit for their guide and have not been deceived, verily I say unto you, they shall not be hewn down and cast into the fire, but shall abide the day, and the earth shall be given unto them for an inheritance, and they shall multiply and wax strong, and their children shall grow up without sin unto salvation, and the Lord shall be in their midst, and his glory shall be upon them, and he will be their king and their lawgiver. That's what he wants us to feel, that relationship with him and that confidence. And as we are um, interacting with uh, attacks against our faith, as we're trying to hold on to what we believe in in the face of those that would attack it, I think it's helpful, uh, most helpful, to remember the confidence that comes from knowing that we have a relationship with the Savior and that we're accepted of him. I really love the idea of focusing more on the virgins who had oil, who were gaining oil, and consider yourself one of those. I think too often when we read this parable, and I know I'm guilty of this, that's why maybe why this resonates with me, is I do feel a little more of that frantic feeling. I feel of that... um, or I've always put myself into that position. Oh, what would that feel to have felt that? Because we know what that feels feels like to procrastinate. Unfortunately, I do maybe too much, but I'm learning. But um, I think that as we think of ourselves as someone who really honestly is preparing, even these signs of the second coming, the fear leaves, the idea, the notion is not there that we need to be frantic about these things because we're preparing. And this is the perfect, perfect example of that small things are great things brought to pass. Um, We're gathering slowly and it's not perfect and it's not going to be consistent probably, but that we can do that and feel a lot more at peace and have that feeling with us that he's going to help us and help us add to our lamps. And I think it diminishes our desire to fight back or to match criticism with criticism, or to try and argumentatively defend our faith. I think attacks and defenses come when we feel like we are left out of the wedding feast. They don't come when we are confident about our standing before the Lord. You look at the way that church leaders act in the face of the overwhelming criticism that's hurled at them, and they don't stand up in conference and hurl back accusations or defenses or arguments. They just consistently teach their testimonies, their beliefs, their faith, and the truth. And how can they do that? 
Well, I think it starts because they're confident in their standing before God. And so what is what can we feel in the to uh, to help embrace our faith in the face of criticism? I think we can feel confident in our relationship with God. So the next question is, what do we need to do in order to feel that peace, in order to obtain that more serene feeling as we um, try and embrace our faith in times in hard times? Um, and we get that answer in the very beginning of section 45. I'll start reading it. I'm sure you'll hear it as the words repeat. Hearken, O ye my people of my church, to whom the kingdom has been given. Hearken ye, and give ear to him who laid the foundations of the earth, who made the heavens and all the hosts thereof, and by whom all things were made, which live and move and have a being. And again I say, hearken unto my voice, lest death shall overtake you in an hour, when ye think not the summer shall be past. And the harvest ended, and your souls not save. Listen to him who is the advocate with the Father, who is pleading your cause before him. And then further down, listen together, hear my voice. Now, if you didn't catch it, which I'm sure you did, that word hearken, hearken unto my voice, listen to him, listen together and hear my voice. Over and over again, these are repeated. And no coincidence that we are hearing something over and over repeated. If you follow any of the... um apostles and our prophet on Instagram or social media, you will see them all posting their videos of how they hear God's voice. You go to the church's website and there's always one of those up, one of the new videos of our leaders talking about how they hear God's voice. It's so important to hearken. Something we can do is to listen and open up our ears and that is a way that we can know and feel more fully. Well, and again, it helps us as we try and embrace our faith in the face of attacks because we're shifting our listening from what others might be saying about our faith to what God is saying about our faith. The implication that the Lord has in all of these places in the Doctrine and Covenants where he invites us or commands us to hearken to him is, listen to me, not them. I am the one that speaks truth and comfort and peace. They are the ones that speak discord and doubt and trouble. Listen to me, hearken to my voice, and I will help you find that peace. I always like the do question. What is our action that we need to take? Because I think it makes it so practical. And I think we get the practical takeaway from these first few verses in section 45, telling us to hearken, to listen. And even more practical, we have our prophet today and the leaders of our church telling us to learn how God speaks to you, to listen for him, to be more aware of the way that he works in, in our lives. I like that. Well, the final challenge then uh, is what can we or what should we become or what can we be that helps us to embrace our faith in the face of attacks. Um, and this one was interesting to me because I found a really kind of surprising yet clear be maybe for me, at the end of the section. Uh, in verse 67, it references the terror of the Lord, which shows up again in verse 74 and 75. And 
when I read that, I have the same mental image that you probably do. Terror of the Lord sounds like something that's very abrupt, very violent, and very scary. But then it says this, this is verse 68, and you have to read this kind of slow and careful. It shall come to pass among the wicked that every man that will not take his sword against his neighbor, meaning every person that is not willing to pick up a sword and fight, must needs flee unto Zion for safety. And there shall be gathered unto it, meaning gathered in Zion, out of every nation under heaven. And it shall be the only people that shall not be at war one with another. In other words, the people from the world that refuse to fight, that refuse to pick up their sword and do battle against their neighbor, the only place they will find safety is in Zion. And so Zion will start to gather people from all over the world who don't want to fight anymore. And then in verse 70, it says, And it shall be said among the wicked, Let us not go up to battle against Zion, for the inhabitants of Zion are terrible, wherefore we cannot stand. Now notice, the thing that makes them terrible is not their ability to fight. It's not their prowess with the sword. Or in modern times, we don't fight as much with the sword as we do with the word. But it's not their ability to fight with the word either that makes them terrible. It is their refusal to pick up the sword or pick up the word against others in aggression that marks them as Zion and makes them quote-unquote terrible. I think the terror of the Lord isn't his ability to fight battles and wage war and conquer enemies. I think the terror of the Lord is the fact that he is so strikingly different from the world in his unyielding pursuit of peace. It's his ability to make peace, not war, that makes the Lord quote-unquote terrible. And if we want to be able to embrace our faith um, as others might attack it, we have to be committed to that kind of peace. We have to be more terrible. In other words, we have to be more peaceful. We cannot fight back. We have to lay down our swords. As the book of Revelation says, we have to beat our swords into plowshares. We have to lay down our weapons of war and pick up the tools of peace if we're ever going to have a hope of changing ourselves and changing the world. What I feel from those things as we have studied what to know and what to feel and what to do and what to become and be is just a little more peace in knowing who is on my side with me through anything that I go through. And I think that's what these early saints felt as well, um, knowing that peace is with them. So with all that being said, verse 32, But my disciples shall stand in holy places and be not moved. So hopefully that means that you will learn how to embrace your faith more fully as you study this section this week, knowing who God is, feeling more confident that he is by your side, listening more to his voice, and being more at peace Thank you so much for studying with us this week. We hope you have a great week and check out our website. If you are interested in any of that 
helpful resources that we mentioned at the beginning of this episode, and we will be back next week. Thank you.